this time we'll dismiss our kids to Kids Church as they continue to study the Advent alongside us. <clears throat> well, this morning is the theme for Advent is hope. And hope is an interesting thing. Hope is, it is one of the, one of the things that, that humanity holds on to sometimes in spite of uh, circumstances, in spite of all of the external uh, that, that we should see. We, we look at the external circumstances, we look at the temporal, we look at what we can see, and it doesn't seem, uh, doesn't appear that, that there is reason for hope. Yet hope is, a, is an emotion, hope is a, a, a sentiment that we as humanity hold on to. Uh, for those of us uh, who are sports fans, uh, hope can be one of the single most uh, excruciating aspects of being a sports fan. Uh, growing up, I was a, a, we, uh, growing up as a baseball fan, uh, in Louisiana you were either, you either watched the Cubs on WGN or you watched the Braves on TBS. And, and if you watched the Cubs, then you hated the Braves. And if you watched the Braves, then you hated the Cubs. Well, I was a Cubs fan. And for a long time, it was excruciating. Because every year that came out, the spring training came out, and, and you, you hoped that, that maybe this was the year, that maybe they would make the right moves, maybe they would make the right trades. And, and after the first month of the season, you knew that, yeah, this wasn't going to be the year. And for those lifelong Cubs fans... You know, there was a 108-year drought that the Cubs uh, went without ever winning a World Series. Well, this past year, uh, my son and I got a chance to go to uh, Chicago, and we got a chance to watch the Cubs play in Wrigley Field. And after watching the Cubs play in Wrigley Field, the Cubs make it to the playoffs. They win a game in the opening round of the playoffs. They make it to the NLCS. They win the National Championship Series, and they finally win the World Series. And hope is one of those things that, that every year you, 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 you come to, you come to the, the expectancy and the, the hope, the optimism that maybe this will be the year. That maybe this will be the year. And most of the time, that hope is in the face of, in the face of unsurmountable obstacles, in the face of circumstances that, that don't seem like a reality and this was the situation and the circumstance for Israel up until the coming of the Messiah this was not a 108 year drought of a world series this was not uh, a, a people uh, longing for a Super Bowl victory or longing for a national championship this was a people that had spent hundreds and hundreds of years in exile Israel had been in exile for over 400 years. The northern kingdoms of Israel had been in exile for over 500 years. Now, I want to put this into perspective for you because the United States has been a nation for a little over 200 years. This is more than twice the, the duration that the United States has been a country. That Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, had been in exile under the, under the uh, Assyrians and then under the Babylonians and under the Persians and under the Greeks and under the Romans for over 500 years while the southern kingdom had been under exile 
for over 400 years. They'd suffered under the hands of, of wicked, godless kings, suffered under the hands of, of men who sought to completely eradicate the nation of Israel and the people of God from the face of the planet. And it would be easy for Israel to lose hope. I mean, we're talking 400 years. Wrap your brain around that. Not only had Israel been suffering under exile, but Israel has been suffering the silence from God. Even, even during, even during the, the period of, of, of the divided kingdom, even during the periods of Jeremiah and Lamentations and Ezekiel, there, there was a, a time where God was speaking to His people. Through the prophets, he was speaking through Amos, and he was speaking through Joel, he was speaking through Hosea, he was speaking through Obadiah. He was speaking to them, thus saith the Lord, repent, turn from your sin, and you will find grace. Turn from your sin, and you will find mercy. God is is longing to be your God, and he wants you to be his people. And then there came a point in time whenever God stopped speaking to his people. And there was a period of silence where the prophets of God no longer spoke to the people of Israel. All the while, the people of Israel are suffering under exile. They're suffering under godless kings of the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. All the while, God is silent. This was a time of utter hopelessness and darkness for the people of Israel. So, What was the reason? What was the purpose? Why would Israel have any reason to be hopeful? Why was there anything for them to hold on to? Why was there any reason for hope? And this is the only answer that we have, is that they had the Word of God. They had His faithful testimony of His faithfulness throughout all of Israel's history. Because the history of Israel is a history of God's faithfulness in spite of Israel's unfaithfulness. I want us to remind you, I want us to remind you of the very first covenant that God established with Abraham. As God established his covenant with Abraham, in fact, I want us to see this. You may already be familiar with this. But for those of you who aren't, I want to remind you of this. Go with me, if you will, to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 15. I'm sorry, Chris, I I didn't realize I was going to do this this morning. He's just sitting back there smiling. Genesis chapter 15. We're going to begin reading this morning. And we're going to look at this. And and, and by the way, this is all, uh, 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 this is Lanyap. This isn't even the text we're going to be studying this morning. Uh, Genesis chapter 15. We're going to begin reading. Uh, in verse verse 2, Abram said to God, he said, O Lord God, will thou give me a son, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, since you have given me no offspring to me, and only born, on, and given me no, oh, no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one shall come forth from your own body, and he shall be your heir. And then Abram, God took Abraham outside, in verse 5, and he said, Now look toward the heavens, count the stars if you are able to count them. 
so shall your descendants be. He believed him as the Lord, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he said to them, I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of the Chaldeans to this land to possess him. He said, O Lord God, how will I know that I will possess him? And then God is going to take the next few verses, and he's going to explain to him, I am going to give you a sign of the covenant. I'm going to confirm my covenant before you. Look at the text. It says in verse 8, I'm sorry, verse 9, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought all these to him. He cut them in two and laid them each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds. And the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. And now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. And as for you, you will go to your fathers in peace, you will be buried at a good old age, and in the fourth generation they shall return, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. It came about when the sun had set, it was very dark, and behold, there appeared smoking oven and a flaming torch was passed between these two pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants I have given this land. And then he's, he lays out the parameters of the land. Now, why, why are you talking about this, preacher? What, what does this have to do with anything? This is where God begins to communicate to Israel my faithfulness regardless of your faithfulness. Because when God makes this covenant with Abram, the sign of the covenant was, it was a symbol that they would take the two pieces of the sacrifice, they would separate them, and then the two parties that were, that were entering into the covenant would pass between the two sacrifices as a symbol that this covenant is going to be bound by blood. Well, I wanted to remind you, look at the text, and where is Abraham while, while these, these sacrifices are being separated and the two parties are passing between the, the sacrifices? Where is Abraham? What's he doing? He's asleep. Abraham is sleeping. And God confirms the covenant with Israel with his own presence. And he said, I am going to be your God, and you are going to be my people. I am going to be faithful to you based upon my character, based upon my righteousness, based upon who I am, not based upon who you are. And so why does Israel have hope? Why does Israel have hope that in the midst of exile, in the midst of 400, 500 years of captivity, in the midst of 400 years of silence, in the midst of of everything that we have done, that we have played the harlot, that we have worshipped false gods, that we have given ourselves to the Baal, we have given ourselves to Ashtoreth, we have have played uh, uh, idolatry with, with, with all these foreign gods. Why does Israel have hope? Because their hope is found not in what they do, but their hope is found in the faithfulness of their God. That he has said, I will be your God and you will be my people. That he has said, my covenant is established because of who I am, not because of who you are. Israel has hope because of the history of the faithfulness of God. There was a time whenever Israel was suffering in captivity under Egypt. And they were facing unbelievable circumstances. And what did God do? He raised up Moses. And he delivered Israel from their captivity. He sent plague after plague after plague. He sent the Passover lamb. There was a time whenever Israel was suffering under the period of the judges, when they were suffering under the Midianites, and they were suffering under the Gibeonites, and they were suffering under all of the the Philistines and many of the, the oppressors of Israel. And what did God do? He raised up judge after judge after judge to deliver Israel. Why? 
Because God is faithful even whenever Israel is not. Whenever Israel is suffering under Artaxerxes and Persia, and a man named Haman seeks to exterminate Israel, and Israel faces certain genocide, what does God do? He raises up a queen named Esther to deliver Israel. Why? Because God is faithful and that is His character. How many times are we unaware of the circumstances surrounding us that God is working and we don't even know? If you turn with me to Job, we're going to read verses, Job chapter 13, verses 1 through 15. This is going to be the, the, the text this morning, Job chapter 13, verses 1 through 15, that is going to illustrate God's faithfulness in the midst of our ignorance, in the midst of our, our great need. <clears throat> Job chapter 13. Behold, my eye has seen all of this, and my ear has heard and understood. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you, but I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue with God. But you smear with lies. You are all worthless physicians. Oh, that you would be completely silent, and that it would be your wisdom. Please hear my argument and listen to my contentions of my lips. Will you speak what is unjust for God and speak what is deceitful for Him? Will you show partiality for Him? Will you contend for God? Will it be well? He examines you. Or will you deceive Him as one, who de- as one deceives a man? He will surely repro- reprove you if you secretly show partiality. Will not His majesty terrify you and the dread of Him fall upon you? Your memorable sayings are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. Be silent before me so that I may speak and let come upon me what may. Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hands? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. Let's pray. God, as we hear your word, may you speak hope to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now this is a story where, many, where most of us are familiar. The story of Job is a story of, of familiarity to us. We know that, that, that Satan approaches God in the very beginning of the book of Job, and, and he says the only reason that, that Job is faithful to you is because you have blessed him, and you have given him all this stuff, and he's wealthy, and he has children, and he has land, and he has cattle, and he is being blessed amongst all the people of the earth. And then God has this conversation with the enemy. And he says, take from him whatever you will. Take his money. Take his livestock. Take his land. And he will still praise me. And so Job does that. He takes his money and he takes his land and he takes his livestock. And then Job praises the Lord. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then Satan is given permission to take Job's family from him. And then Job's health from him. And all of Job's, his wife, his friends, they all tell Job, they say, curse God, die. You have been smitten by God. And what's interesting is Job is completely unaware of the circumstances that have led to his, 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 his plight. 
He doesn't know why he's lost his money. He doesn't know why he has lost his field. He doesn't know why he's lost his livestock. He doesn't know why he has lost his family. He doesn't know why he's lost his health. All he knows is that the God that he serves is faithful and kind and loving, that God is good and that God does good. And so Job holds on to the truth of who God is, holds on to the character of who God is, completely ignorant, completely unaware of all of the circumstances surrounding his loss. And how many times are we unaware of the circumstances surrounding our hardships. And yet we want to throw our hands up and say, what have I done? Why do I deserve this? Why do I, why am I suffering this plight? What's interesting, Israel had the text. They had, during the exile, Israel had lost the land. They had lost the temple. But what they held on to was the Word of God. They still had the text. They still had the stories of Job. They still had the stories of Abraham. They still had the stories of Moses. They had the stories of Daniel. They had the stories of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They had the stories of Queen Esther. And so while they had lost the land, while they had lost the temple, they were able to hold on to these faithful stories, these faithful testimonies of God and His goodness. I want to point out to you what Job's friends say for Job to do. If you go back and you look at the book of Job, in Job chapter 4, Eliphaz, one of Job's friends, he tells him, he says, Job, the innocent do not suffer harm. If you are innocent, if you have done what is good and you have done what is right, the innocent do not suffer harm. We go back and we look at some of the other advice that his friends give him. His friends tell him that God rewards the good and God punishes the evil. We read that Job's friends tell him that God is just and that he would not He would not exercise judgment upon the righteous. And so Job hears these these encouragements from his friend and said, Job, you need to repent because clearly you've done something wrong. Clearly you are a man who is is wicked and has done what is wickedness because, because look at what has happened to you. If you were a good righteous man, this wouldn't be happening. What does Job hold on to? He holds on to the hope that is in Christ. He holds on to the hope that is in God because he knows the character of his God. And I want you, know, I want you to notice what he says in Job chapter 13. At the end of verse, the end of the passage we read, Job says this. Verse 15. He says, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. His friends tell him, Examine the circumstances, Job. You've lost all your money. You've lost all your field. You've lost all your cattle. You've lost all your ox. You've lost all your donkey. You've lost all your camel. You've lost all your children. You've lost your health. 
Examine the circumstances. Curse God and die. Job says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. And this is where Israel was, church. Israel was in a place where they were suffering for 400 years. They were suffering in silence. And it appeared that God had, that God had, had left them, that God had pushed them aside, that God had forgotten about them. But they know the faithfulness of their God. They know that story after story, that testimony after testimony, that God said, I will be faithful, not based upon who you are, but based upon who I am. And I want us to see what God was doing behind the scenes that Israel was ignorant of, that Israel was unaware of, that, they, that would give them reason to have hope. This is something that, that, that I think we oftentimes miss whenever we look at what God is doing, is that God is always working behind the scenes. God is always working in your life. Whenever you lose that job, or circumstances in your, in your marriage or in your family are going difficult, or, or being difficult, and there are very hard times in your life and, and we, we sometimes forget that God is working even through those. I want to point out that there were some very important things that were happening in the realm and the scope of history leading up to the coming of Christ that were, that were imperative. If we remember, Israel suffers under the hands of the Babylonians, and the Babylonians give way to the Persians, and the Persians give way to the Greeks. And as Alexander takes over civilization, as Alexander takes over the Grecian Empire, and he conquers all of the known world as far as Great Britain to the, to the west and as far as India to the east, all of the known world, all of the civilized world is united under one government under one civilization and that's called the greek civilization and with the hellenization with the with the greek captivity of all of the known world it unites the entire civilized world under one language and everybody from the united kingdom all the way to india speaks greek for the first time in all of history the entire known world the entire civilized world was united under one language, and God is doing this all in the background while Israel is suffering under captivity. And then, as the Grecian Empire wanes, the Romans begin to rise to power. And God has placed Israel in the only single land bridge connecting the three major continents Europe, Asia and Africa and there's only one place where you can go from Europe to Asia to Africa by land and that's through a narrow piece of ground called Israel no coincidence that this is the place where civilization began no coincidence that this is the place where God says, this is the parameters of the land that I will give you. This is the land that is flowing with milk and honey. This is the land that I am going to establish my people. 
and he places them right there in Israel. And he unites the entire known world, the entire civilized world under one language. And then as Rome comes to power, what God does through the, through the organization and through the, through the military might and through the technology of the Roman government is he unites this known world that is already united in language. He unites them in a very physical way by building roads. You've heard the statement, all roads lead to Rome. Why? Because Rome was the first civilization to establish roads, paved roads. And now, this civilization that was united under one language could travel as far as west, far west as Great Britain to as far east as, as India, and they could travel through roads, through safe roads that were paved, that, that, that what would normally take months and years now could be done in, in, in weeks and you could, you could get on horse and you could get on buggy and you could go and you could take wagons and trade could, could commence and there could be, could, could be the, the dispersing of not only goods and services but ideas and you could go from one city to the other city and you could, you could travel throughout the civilization. That civilization which was united under one language. It's interesting, during this time, the uniting of the languages and safe travel, there arose a messianic expectancy. And during this intertestamental period, in an effort to throw off the bondage of the Roman Empire, there were a series of revolts from the Jewish people. The reason that our Jewish brothers and sisters celebrate Hanukkah is because of one of these revolts, the Maccabean Revolt, where a man by the name of Judas Maccabees, where a man by the name of Judas Maccabees overthrows the Roman government there in Jerusalem, giving way to the messianic expectancy that maybe Judas Maccabees, maybe he is the Messiah that is to come. Maybe he is the one that is going to, to deliver Israel from their bondage and to restore Israel to prominence. And there began to be this messianic expectancy. So I want us to understand what God is doing to give Israel hope. He unites the entire nation, the entire civilization under one language. He allows safe travel and safe passage. And then he renews through the Jewish people, a messianic expectancy. Why? Because God is faithful. Job's hope was not based upon circumstances. Looking around, Job said, I have no reason to be hopeful. My hope is not based upon circumstances. It's based upon God's character. Psalm 34, verse 8 says this, Psalm 34, verse 8, the psalmist says this. He says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Psalm 100, verse 5, it says, For the Lord is good, His loving kindness is everlasting, and His faithfulness to all generations. In the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verse 11, John the Revelator said, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called what? Faithful and true. 
God is faithful. That is his character. And Job knew his character. And Job was able to say, looking at God's character, that though he slay me, though everything in my circumstances looks like it's, it's dire, though everything in my circumstances look like that this is the end, I hope in him, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Why? Not because my circumstances tell me otherwise, but because I know his character. This is where Israel was. 400 years of silence. Captivity under the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. But they could say, I know that my God is faithful. I have hope because of who he is. Turn with me, if you will, to Galatians chapter 4. I want you to see this. That God is working and always has been working. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth the Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoptions as sons. When the fullness of time came, could God have sent a Messiah before the exile? Before the captivity of the Babylonians? Absolutely. Could God have, have as, as Queen Esther rose up during the Persian Empire and delivered the nation of Israel from Haman's evil plot, could God have raised up a Messiah at that point? Absolutely. During the Grecian captivity in the Grecian Empire, could God have raised up a Messiah? Absolutely. Could God have raised up a Messiah? Could it have been Judas Maccabees? Maybe. But that was not God's plan. God needed, God was orchestrating and working and ordaining all of these things to come into play so that when Jesus came into the world, when there was a son that was born of a virgin and he was laid in a feed trough in a, in a manger, he was laid in a feed trough in Bethlehem and the shepherds came and visited and the, and the magi came and visited, that it would be at the perfect time. Why? Because all the world was united under one language. Interestingly enough, what language was the New Testament written in? Greek. All of a sudden, the Gentiles had access to the message of the gospel. All of a sudden, this good news of this Messiah could be shared not just with the people of Israel, but with all of the people. Because remember the promise that God made to Abraham whenever God called Abraham out of the land of the Chaldeans? He said, Abram, I will make you a great nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by you. That is only possible if the Messiah is made available to all the nations. That is only possible if all the nations hear of this good news. And that is only possible if all of the nations speak the same language in Greek. Interestingly enough, not only did, did Christ come at the time whenever all of the known civilized world is speaking one language, but he does so in a time whenever the missionaries, whenever Paul and Silas and Barnabas and Timothy and James and Peter and John and these apostles and 
They can take this good news of the gospel and they can travel safely from Philippi to Derby to Ephesus to Corinth. And they can travel throughout the empire on roads spreading the good news of the gospel. In the fullness of time, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a virgin, that he might redeem his people. I want to point out something to you. Go to the book of Job, chapter 19. As you flip there to the book of Job, chapter 19, I want to remind you that the book of Job, many scholars believe, is the oldest book in the, in the Old Testament. Many scholars believe that the book of Job predates the book of Genesis. Many scholars believe that Job chapter 19 is the first mentioning and the first messianic text in all of the scriptures. Job chapter 19, verse 25, I want you to hear what Job says. Ignorant, ignorant of what took place in verse 1 and 2, chapter 1 and 2 of Job, looking at his circumstances, seeing that, that, that there is no reason for hope, Job writes this in chapter 19, verse 25. He says, as for me, I've lost my family. I've lost my wealth. I've lost my health. The only thing staring at me is imminent death. As for me, I know my Redeemer lives. And at last, He will take His stand upon this earth. Job. Not having the testimony of God's faithfulness through the years. Not having the testimony of God's deliverance from captivity in Egypt. Not having the testimony of God saving His people from the plight of the judges. Not having the testimony of God saving His people from genocide under the Persians. Not having the testimony of the New Testament. Job says this, I know that my Redeemer lives looking forward to the one who would redeem him, looking forward to the one who would deliver him, looking forward to the one who would bring him hope out of hopelessness. If Job, who knows nothing of God's faithfulness other than, other than his own personal interaction with God's faithfulness, who knows no other story, who knows no other account, no other testimony of his faithfulness, yet has hope, in the midst of all of his circumstances, how can we, church, not have hope? Revelation chapter 12, verse 11 says, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and they loved not their life even unto death. The word of the testimony, the testimony of the faithful, gives us hope. That's the reason we have hope. And on this Advent season, as we look back at the history of the church, as we look back at, at, at why was there hope? Because God was giving them hope because of who He was, because of His character. And so this morning, my question to us is, where is your hope? Is your hope in this world? The answer to that is clearly no.
Our hope is not in our government. Our hope is not in our politicians. Praise God, it is not in our politicians. Our hope is not in what we can do as a society. Our hope is not based upon being good. Our hope is not based upon the kindness of our neighbors. Our hope is not based upon our economy. Our hope is not based upon our retirement. Our hope is not based upon anything that this world has to offer. But our hope must be found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Paul calls him the hope of glory. The only way for us to have hope in Jesus is if we've placed our faith and trust in what he has done, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Peter says that we should always be ready to give an account for the hope that is within us. What is that hope that is within us? That in the fullness of time, God sent forth a son, born of a virgin, that he would pay the penalty for my sin, that I might be adopted as sons. Let's pray. God, the message of hope is the message of Jesus. It's a message that while we were dead in our trespasses and sin, that you sent forth Jesus. In the fullness of time, you had orchestrated, united the world in one language, united the world in roads and developed a messianic expectancy and then you sent Jesus to pay the penalty for our sin. The hope that we have is found only in Jesus. For may the message of the gospel this Christmas season be a message of hope. That though all of the circumstances in our life may be falling apart that we have hope in Christ. Or may we be able to share the message of hope with our friends, our co-workers, and our loved ones. May we be instruments of the gospel. Or maybe there's someone here this morning who needs to place their hope and faith in Jesus. During this time of invitation, may you do business with the Holy Spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray.